Matthew chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 21 to 23. Finishing up our series in the Sermon on the Mount. What a rich section of Scripture this has been. Full of wonderful truth from our Savior about kingdom living, learning to live under His rule, depending on Him, and experiencing the life-changing difference of Him in our lives, transforming how we live, how we interact, and enabling us by our relationship with Him under His rule to fulfill the law, to walk in the holy ways of God and the kingdom ways. I trust that you've been blessed by this series, and we look forward to the fruit that God will bring over the long haul, and we look forward to our next series as well as we uh, later, I think in early June, start the book of Acts looking at the unstoppable gospel at work. Let's pray as we prepare to hear from God's Word. As we come on Sunday mornings to hear the Word preached, or not listening to a lecture uh, merely, or not just hearing an ancient manuscript, but we are listening to God Himself through His Word by the gift of preaching. And so we need His help. And we seek Him. So let's express that in prayer. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your Word is living and active. It is not merely some ancient manuscript. It is alive. Just as You are alive and You are Lord. And just as Your Word will be fulfilled and will endure forever. Lord, therefore Your Word is active. And by the power of the Spirit we we are changed and transformed as we hear Your Word. We thank You for that. So, well, we don't want to take this lightly. We want to come looking to You. So, Lord, would You help us? Lord, if I look at myself and just us, uh, I don't have reason for hope. But when we look at Your Word and we look at Your graciousness and the power of Your Spirit You offer us, Lord, there's much reason for hope that You would speak. So thank You. Thank You that You receive us through Christ and that you love to speak to us. So do this, Lord. Empower me to serve your precious people and your wonderful purposes. We want to hear from you, our God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Verse, chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. And I left my normal Bible at home by accident, so hopefully my eyes will work and I can read my miniature Bible. And you have it up there to see, I think, as well. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do mighty works in your name? And then I, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. A hard-hitting few verses from Jesus as he concludes his Sermon on the Mount. And as he directs us to think in light of these truths in certain ways, he's bringing exhortations, concluding exhortations to us. 
He's doing this because he loves his disciples. And he wants us to experience the, the full benefit of these truths. So a number of these concluding exhortations are warnings to us. They're to be taken in the, the, the whole context of the Sermon on the Mount and the context of the character of God. And so we recognize in that that they're warnings that come from the goodness of God because he wants us to walk in truth. So we're going to look at this this interchange, this section of Scripture from Jesus this morning. But first, let me tell you a little story. It's a true story. There was this town, a, a mid-sized town, probably somewhat like Haverhill. And back in the springtime, probably a lot like this springtime perhaps, in 1741, through the preaching of a gifted yet very mild-mannered preacher named Jonathan Edwards, who later on became very famous. This small town of Northampton, Massachusetts, experienced dramatic encounters with God that radically changed the whole town. And you can read about these encounters. I'm just going to talk about a few of them. People were so affected as the Word was preached, and and the messages of the Word were, were really not all that different than other messages given by other pastors and Christians at other times. They were, they were full of gospel truth, full of biblical truth. There wasn't anything particularly special about how they were presented. Matter of fact, Jonathan Edwards was known for being kind of a boring speaker, a somewhat monotonous speaker. But God worked wonders in this town back in that spring. To talk about some of the uh, descriptions, it says at one point they were so greatly affected with a sense of the greatness and glory of divine things and the infinite importance of the things of eternity that they were not able to conceal it. The affection of their minds overcoming their strength, their physical strength, and having a very visible effect upon their bodies. So as people were in these meetings, and this was talking about a youth meeting, by the way, the, 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 the youth were so affected by the truths that, that it, they were physical manifestations. They were overcome with emotion and, and feeling and, and physical things. It says that many of the young people and children that were professing Christians appeared to be overcome with a sense of the greatness and glory of divine things and with an admiration, love, joy, and praise and compassion to others. Others that were not yet Christians, it says many others at the same time were overcome with distress about their sinful and miserable estate and condition so that the whole room was full of nothing but outcries, faintings, and the like. Can you picture that? Can you picture a youth fellowship meeting like that, guys? That would be wonderful, I think. Later on, there were some other meetings, similar meetings. And it talks about what was going on there. there uh, at one point, uh, these sort of things were going on, and it, it says they went home crying aloud through the streets to all parts of the town. Can you picture that? A meeting where they encounter God so powerfully, that so affected that as they walk home, and they would have walked home back then, they're just wailing or worshiping, crying aloud in the streets. So that people are hearing, and, and the whole town heard it and came to see. This work went on throughout that summer and fall. And Jonathan Edwards says there was an appearance of a glorious 
progress of the work of God upon the hearts of sinners in conviction and conversion. This summer and autumn, in great numbers, I think, we have reason to hope, were brought savingly home to Christ. It was a fantastic work. And there was much good and real fruit. It sounds wonderful, but if you study the history, you know that sometime after that, things changed. A few years later, Pastor Edwards and others uncovered an underground movement of young people in the church who were secretly going out at night and carousing about and and not just mischievous little stuff. They were getting into serious sin. Serious sins of various sorts. And so, as the pastor of the church and a leading figure in the town, along with other leaders, he he opened an inquiry to find out what was going on and tried to bring some, some change. As a, a result of that, actually, the, the ringleaders of that, they, as he sought to have proceedings to find out what was going on, they, they, as they waited outside, waiting to come in to testify, they openly defied Jonathan Edwards, insulting him, swearing, and mocking the proceedings. While the other youth looked on and really didn't do anything. Sarah O'Dwight, the historian and descendant of Jonathan Edwards, recounts this about what went on. He said, talking about how it was never the same after that, he said, he certainly, speaking of Jonathan, had no great visible success after this. The influences of the Holy Spirit were chiefly withheld, and stupidity and worldly mindedness were greatly increased among them. That great and singular degree of good order, sound morals, and visible religion, which had for years prevailed at Northampton, soon began gradually to decay. And the young people obviously became from that time more dissolute. So what happened? What went on? I have some ideas, but I don't know all of that went on. What happened to all that enthusiasm, all that faith, all that good change? Some of it endured, indeed. We can learn that and see that. But what happened as a whole? What happened to all that enthusiasm, all that orthodoxy, all those wonderful miracles of God? Well, Jesus in this passage today wants to talk about that, wants to instruct us, wants to put these things in perspective for us. The truth of today's passage not only applies to the youth of Northampton in 1741, but to the youth of King of Grace and the elderly and all in between of King of Grace and all of the church as well. To succinctly try to put what Jesus is saying here, He's telling us in Matthew 7, 21-23, we must not put our confidence in our orthodoxy, our enthusiasm, or our activity. We must not put our confidence in our orthodoxy, our enthusiasm, or our activity. But we must genuinely trust, follow, and obey Christ. So let's talk about that. We're going to spend some time talking about false reasons for our confidence and then legitimate reasons for our confidence. In this section, Jesus starts out saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, Lord is an expression that's appropriate for Jesus. 
It means master, master, but it also can mean much more than just a regular master, but the ultimate master. To call Jesus Lord is appropriate. It is an orthodox way to relate to Jesus. Orthodox is a word that means straight worship or accurate worship. It is accurate worship to call Him Lord. The people in this section of Scripture call Him Lord, and they are right. They are orthodox in their description of Jesus as Lord. Orthodoxy, being accurate in our worship having right understanding, is necessary for a Christian. Orthodoxy is necessary for a Christian, but never sufficient. Orthodoxy is necessary for a Christian to know Christ and to walk in His ways, but it is not sufficient to be a Christian. We know it's necessary because the Scriptures teach us that. Romans 10, verse 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is... Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There needs to be the understanding and even the confession that Jesus is Lord for a believer. It's important to acknowledge that He is Lord. He's more than a good man. He's more than a good teacher. He's the ultimate Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And getting that understanding is important. Oh, so important. We talked about this last week. That a leader is to watch his life and doctrine closely. He is to watch his orthodoxy. And who you are and what, and what you believe are the fruit of knowing Christ. And they determine your understanding of Him, what you, what you believe about Him. It is important. Orthodoxy is necessary for the Christian life, but it is not sufficient. Sadly, we get these things confused sometimes. We think because it's necessary, it's sufficient. If I have an orthodox understanding of Jesus, if if my understanding intellectually is correct, and that's important that it be correct as we can get it, and we're all we're all gonna we should all strive for that, we're all gonna fall short of that. It's important though for us to get it straight as we can. It's necessary that we understand truly who he is, but it is not sufficient. Sometimes we think it's necessary, therefore it's sufficient. In other words, if I just understand Jesus correctly, then I'm in. If I can say He's Lord, then I'm in. If I have a right understanding of Jesus, I'm in. That's not the case. And Jesus is teaching us that. It's necessary but not sufficient. There's lots of things that work that way. There's necessary knowledge but not sufficient knowledge. For example, it's necessary that, that I understand if I'm going to drive a car, if I'm going to drive a Lamborghini Reventone, a $1.5 million car. Anyone know what a Lamborghini Reventone is? All right, all the guys, all the young guys. Oh, yeah, there it is. (laughs) If I'm going to drive this car, it's necessary that I understand how to drive a car, right? I understand where the gas pedal is. I understand what the steering wheel does, right? If I'm going to drive it safely, at least. Uh, If I'm going to drive it legally, it's, it's necessary that I have a driver's license. Those things are necessary, but is it sufficient for me to drive the car, to know about the car, to know where the gas pedal is, to have a license? No. If you don't own the car, you can't drive the car. It's necessary to know about the car and know how to operate it, but it's not sufficient. You've got to own the car, too. And that ain't going to happen, for me, at least. (laughs) There's only 20 of them. They're 1.5 million each. Um, They don't do all that much more than my $4,000 car sitting in my driveway, by the way. Um, 
They do it a little faster and it look a little nicer, but not, not $1.5 million better than my car. Anyhow, that's my personal opinion. It's necessary but not sufficient to understand these things about a car. It's necessary but not sufficient to understand that Jesus is Lord. And that's what he's warning us about, to not put our confidence in our orthodoxy, as important as that is. Next, our enthusiasm is important and I would say even necessary but not sufficient. They say, Lord, Lord, they say it twice. Lord, Lord, there's an earnestness perhaps born of an intimacy that they perceive, or a devotion. There's an enthusiasm in them saying, Lord, Lord. It's indicating their sense of devotion. They're enthusiastic. They're maybe emotional about God. Lord, Lord. They feel it. And that's important. We're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Emotion is important. Emotion is part of love. It's not the centerpiece of love, but it's part of love. And if we think it's that we can somehow love without emotion, then try it with your spouse. Try it with your spouse to say, well, you know, emotion is not necessary in our relationship, just pure deeds and so forth. If you think emotion is optional in your marriage, you might find your spouse thinking that your marriage is optional. (laughs) Emotion is a, a fitting part of our love for one another. And so, as we know the Lord, as our minds are affected by truth, it is fitting that we would say, Lord, Lord. It is fitting when we know Him to to feel it, to express it. It is, I would say, necessary. Now, a little qualifier there, I can't get into that. Emotions look all different for all different types of people. So, we have a range of what is emotional Some of us, when we're really excited, we're jumping up and down. Others just have a slight smile on our face, and that's the height of emotion for us. So, but but whether whatever the range might be, let's then all look at one person, okay? Um, Whatever the range might be, whatever the range might be, um, and I didn't. This is probably a number of us. It might be in different ranges. I'm not. I don't have a huge emotional range myself. But whatever the range might be, it's appropriate to have emotion for the Lord. It is. It is necessary but not sufficient. We can feel all sorts of things about different things. We can feel strongly about things. You might feel very strongly and very emotional about your membership in the Flat Earth Society. You might feel very passionate that this is a key thing that people need to understand and believe. You might feel very strongly about your membership. You might feel very strongly that the moon landing was all staged by the government. You might feel very strongly that the sun is actually just a light that's 32 miles across, only 3,000 miles away, and it rotates around the flat earth. You might feel very strongly about those things. But that doesn't mean they're true. Obviously. The earth, as far as I can tell is a sphere 8,000 miles across in diameter. I don't know how you feel about that. I don't mean to get you upset, but, but, <laughs> but how we feel doesn't necessarily matter. It's important. It's necessary in our relationship with the Lord, but it is not sufficient. And so saying, Lord, Lord, that's good but it is not sufficient to give us confidence that we are indeed His. And finally, Jesus says, 
here. They say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do mighty works in Your name? Pretty wild stuff going on. These people have done some pretty amazing stuff. They've prophesied in the name of Jesus. And, and we don't know all that that means. Maybe they've, they've shared, predicted the future in some way that God would have them do. Maybe they've shared truths about God in powerful, life-changing ways. They've prophesied in His name. And they're claiming that as a reason for their confidence before them, before God. They've cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They've done Wonderful things and casting out demons out of those that are demonized. Pretty wild stuff. Good stuff. Prophesying, casting demons out. All good stuff. They've, they've done mighty miracles in the name of Jesus. Maybe they've even been used to raise the dead. Powerful miracles. These are important things. But they're not sufficient to indicate that we belong to Jesus. They're important, and some degree of works in the Lord's name would be necessary for a believer. Not necessarily at this level, but not sufficient. Not sufficient. Now that's not to say that these things aren't good. They're wonderful things. And they're important things. Jesus Himself commissioned His disciples to go and do these sort of things. To go and prophesy in His name. To to Pray and see demons driven out of people. To do mighty acts. To raise the dead. He commissioned His apostles to do this. And today, throughout the world, these sort of things are going on. Mighty works of God testifying to the kingdom. Blessing others. Being used of God to draw people to Christ. Being used of God to build people up. Sadly, in the West, they don't go on as much. I don't know all the reasons for that. It might be our unbelief. But throughout the world, these things are going on. Deliverance from demonic influences. Raising of the dead is going on. From what I've heard firsthand from people, is going on in the world. These mighty works, and they're good things, aren't they? When they're done in Jesus' name for the sake of the Gospel, because they draw attention to God. And that's always the ultimate purpose of these mighty works, to draw attention to Jesus. And there are places in the world, there are people who know Christ now because of a mighty work like this. And there are people who are walking with Christ now because of mighty works like this. And we have folks here in our church who are walking with God because of mighty works and healings. And I've been thinking for some time actually that I'd like to start monthly healing services as a church because there's a gift God has given us. He's done things in our midst. He does it as He chooses. Sometimes He heals, sometimes He doesn't. Ultimately, for every believer, we will be healed in the resurrection. But there's a gift here and there's folks out there who need to know God. And good stewardship of the gift of healing is for us to provide an outlet to welcome people in, to love them in Christ's name and pray for, him, pray for them. So, at some future date, that is my desire for us to have regular healing services. Just thinking about some people very close to me that I can't mention right now. These are good things. They're godly things. They're things we should seek after for the name of Christ and His purposes. They are very important, but they are not sufficient. They are not sufficient in and of themselves 
to indicate and secure the fact that we belong to Him. And sadly, at times, we can look at people who do mighty things in Jesus' name and do just the opposite of what Jesus is teaching us here. They think they must be from God if they do what they do. They must be from God if they are part of a healing. They must be from God if, if they teach and prophesy that way. They must be from God if there are these mighty works. And sadly, the history, the recent history of the Christian world in, in, in the West, in the United States, is one of gullibility and following after and endorsing people because merely they do great works. Now the works, I'm not disputing the works. There's good works. And, and we're not to go after those things and, uh, and, and, and be skeptical and like, oh, it's just all fake. I don't think it is. When I look at some of the great moves of God in recent history, there's much good fruit, much to be pursued. But that doesn't mean that the ministry is entirely legitimate and the minister is entirely legitimate merely because they do good works. And sadly, we can look at some instances in the past five or ten years where there have been legitimate, I believe, movements where God did work, but where the leaders, at least I, as I evaluate things, I could not endorse their leadership, whereby their lifestyle and choices they have denied the name of Christ, or they have not led their people well into truth. Now, indeed, they were used to do mighty things that I think were real and to be pursued. But we must not make the mistake to think that they or, whether it was, whether it was any time in recent history, Lakeland, Florida, or wherever it might be, or in past history as well, because we can make the same mistake with Northampton, to think, well, because this stuff went on, it must have all been legit these mighty miracles, these great conversions, then, then whoever was a leader there must have been legit. No, Jesus is saying, don't do that. Those things are important, but they are not sufficient to indicate that someone belongs to the Lord. And the sad result in this story is that these people who have put their confidence in orthodoxy, enthusiasm, and activity find on the final day As they have declared to him, Lord, Lord, Jesus declares to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's no worse phrase to hear than that. And my concern for us, my pastoral concern, my desire by God's grace is that none of you will have to hear that on the final day. And I will do all I can to ensure that. And so I have to preach messages like this that we don't necessarily like to hear so that you won't put your confidence in your orthodoxy, in your enthusiasm, in your activity, in your heritage, and where you go to school, or where you attend church, or what you know, or who you know in this world, that you won't make that mistake. And you will recognize that those things in and of themselves are bankrupt to secure you in the Lord. There's good news in here too. There's lots of good news in this book. 
And there's good news even in this section of Scripture. For as Jesus brings this warning and this correction, He implies truth for us. True signs. Legitimate reasons to know that we belong to Him. So let me read it again and just listen for the implied, the legitimate reasons to have security that we do belong to Him. Let me read that again and just listen. We'll go over them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Two reasons probably two main categories of reasons that we can have confidence that we are the Lord's. And they're very connected. It's hard to to disconnect them at times. One is that we have believed and received and know the Son. The second that goes with it inextricably, though different and distinguishable from the first, is we must live in genuine obedience to the Lord we trust. We must do the will of the Father in believing and obeying. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus is interacting, after He's done fed the, the 5,000 plus uh, in the miracle there, He's crossed across the lake and they follow Him and He says, you're following Me just because you got fed. You're following because you want somebody who's going to take care of your, your needs. You want a guy that's going to be the man. And there's more to it than that. And, and he has this interaction with them. And they wanted to know, what is the work that God calls us to do? Really, what is the will of the Father? And Jesus says this in John 6, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him who He has sent. At the core of the will of the Father is that we believe in Jesus. Not just that He's a historical figure. Not that he's just that he's a good teacher. Not just that he's a holy man. Not, not, not just these things, but that he is the God-man, God in the flesh, come to save us from our sins and lead us in true and eternal life. We are to believe and receive and rejoice in him. True belief in him is not mere intellectual knowledge. It's not mere agreement. It's embracing who he is and saying, I believe and I want you to be all that you are for me. I want you and I want your ways. And knowing and believing and receiving Him that way shapes, reshapes our lives around Him and must result in action and how we live. And so we fulfill the will of the Father in believing and receiving and we fulfill the, the will of the Father in how we live. We must, if we believe who He is, if we believe He is indeed these things, if we know we're forgiven of our sins, if we know Him in all His glory, we will follow. We will obey. Now, yes, we will obey imperfectly. We will struggle, but we will obey genuinely. So, we must believe and receive and truly know Him. Knowing Jesus is the essence of belonging to Him, the essence of of eternal life. To know Christ. To know the Father. John 17, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. That's the core. To know Him. And if we know Him, we obey Him. 
So in Matthew 25, and this is throughout Scripture, one example, Matthew 25, Jesus tells this story. There's these ten bridesmaids. And in that day, they would have these, I guess, late night processions. The bridegroom would come and they'd walk through the streets. And there's these ten bridesmaids and they're waiting for the bridegroom to come to have this, this parade through the streets. And it's just, it's just a story. And they have their lamps. They've got to have lamps. Uh, it's going to be dark out. So you want to have lights. And five of the bridesmaids have thought, I want to be ready. I'm looking forward to this bridegroom coming back. I'm so looking forward to this parade. And so they, they have their oil and they've stored up the oil just thinking, hey, just in case something happens, I want to have extra oil. I want to make sure I'm ready because I'm so excited about this. The five others were lackadaisical. Eh, whatever. He'll come and come, so what? I'm, I'm adding a little bit to the story so we understand, I think, what Jesus meant in that. And so he comes, and it turns out that he comes a little bit late, and the others have been using their lamps, they're out of oil, and they miss out. And Jesus says to them in the story, After they're excluded, he says, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Now, is it that they didn't have their lamps ready? That was the core of why they were excluded? Or was it that they did not know Jesus? And therefore they weren't ready. So Scripture does that a number of times. Our actions actions show what we believe. Our actions testify to what we really believe And if we know Jesus, have believed and received him, it will show in our actions. So first, to do the will of the Father is to believe and receive Jesus as the Savior King, genuinely. And as a result, secondly, to live faithfully in him. To live faithfully in him. To obey him. Jesus says in this, in this section, I, do, uh, I never knew you. And then what does he call them? Workers of lawlessness. I didn't know you. You're workers of lawlessness. You have not obeyed me. You have not followed in my way. You may have said, Lord, Lord, you might have been orthodox. You might have been enthusiastic. You might have done great things. But at the heart of your life was not obedience. It was something else going on. And I don't know their hearts. We can't always know people's hearts. Actually, we can almost never know truly people's hearts. But Jesus says, I never knew you. You're workers of lawlessness. In 1 John 2, John says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. To know him is to obey him. To know Him is to obey Him. Orthodoxy, enthusiasm, activity are not enough to testify whether we're really His. It's do we know Him and do we obey Him? Now, it doesn't mean we obey perfectly and always. But it does mean we genuinely obey. And if you are His, you will increasingly obey And you'll wrestle and you'll struggle, but you will obey and you'll grow in your obedience. That's what he's saying here. Let let me conclude with two examples I think will help fill this out from Scripture. First, the thief on the cross. You guys know the story? Jesus was crucified. There were men on either side. 
And in Luke 23, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself in us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a wonderful thing to hear. Today you'll be with me in paradise. How much obedience had this man done at that point? Not much. Was there genuine faith in Christ? Yes. There was genuine faith. There wasn't much obedience. His obedience was not going to earn him a place in heaven. It was only Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the only thing. And he put his faith in Jesus. That's the only thing that earned heaven. He was connected to Jesus through faith. That's what got him there. But was there obedience? A little bit, right? At that point, he probably, on the cross, this is an on-the-cross conversion for this thief, most likely. And there is some obedience that goes on in his life. First, there's the obedience of faith. He's trusting Christ. That's a wonderful thing. That's a glorious thing. God is pleased with faith. And he counts it by grace as obedience. And then how the thief interacts. Look at how he interacts. What would you do if you were on a cross? I mean, I don't know if I would do what he did. He, the way he handled the other criminal and what he said. There was, there was some around the mount type obedience going on. So there was obedience in his life because there was genuine faith. Some of us are like the thief on the cross. When we look at our lives, we might look at a, a string of foolish decisions. Evil things even. Things that we regret. Our lives, the testimony of our lives might be a huge pile of things that were wrong and bad and you know it. But if there is faith, you are forgiven and you are counted righteous. And though your deeds might be little, they are real. And they testify to genuine faith. And the Lord wants you to be thankful and to look to Him, to keep on trusting and keep on walking. And as you do that, to keep on obeying. One other example, Peter. And the band can come up as we finish up. Peter, do you know the story of Peter? Peter came to Christ probably pretty early in the Gospel accounts. Boy, he was, uh, he was a passionate guy. Orthodox at times, but also a bit rough around the edges, wasn't he? He made some big mistakes. He was one of those personalities that could really succeed big and fail big, couldn't he? And so we have him in, in the ministry of Jesus when they go away 
And Jesus is asking, who do people say that I am? Jesus, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Right? He gets it right. And Jesus says, this is wonderful, revealed to you from the Father. And then shortly after that, Jesus talks about going to the cross, and Peter's like, no, no, what? No cross. Don't do the cross. That's all wrong. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine what that day was like for Peter? Like, yeah, who I got it right? Oh, man, what did I do? And then his life goes, you go on, you see, he denies Christ. And yet the Lord restores him. He's the leader in Jerusalem and preaches an amazing sermon in Acts 2. Thousands come to Christ. Fantastic stuff. Just powerful, anointed sermon. And then sometime after that, he's in Antioch visiting with the Jews and he falls into legalism to the point where Paul has to rebuke him publicly. Peter did trust Christ truly and did obey Him. Not perfectly, not always, but he did. But at times, he blew it. Big time. Some of us are like Peter. That our lives are full of the wonder of grace and trust in Christ and some great victories, but also some significant and real failures. Peter kept on trusting and kept on walking because his eyes were not on his failures. His eyes were not on his orthodoxy, his enthusiasm, or his activity. His eyes were on Jesus. That was where he put his faith. And as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he walked out real obedience that testified that this indeed is a child of God. As we listen to Jesus in Matthew 7, let us do the same. Let us not put our faith in orthodoxy, enthusiasm, activity, or whatever else we might put our faith in. Things that are important. Things that might even be necessary but are not sufficient. Let us put our faith in Jesus. Fix our eyes on Him. Trust Him and obey Him. And as we do, we can have confidence, yes, indeed, by grace, we are His. And on that last day to hear, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask you to help us. We want to soberly look at these truths. And Lord, I I would believe that in a group this size, there are some amongst us who are putting our faith in false places. Orthodoxy, enthusiasm, activity. The fact that we're in a Christian family or go to a Christian school. All these things. And yet, don't know You, Lord. We ask You for mercy and grace for those in that place. That we would run to You and put our faith in You and follow You. There's nothing better than to trust You and follow You and walk with You. And Lord, for those of us who do genuinely know You, may we be encouraged because by grace there is a faith that's genuine in us as a gift and there is real obedience that You are pleased with. Imperfect, 
inconsistent, but genuine. All of grace, all of glory. We thank you, Lord. Lead us, we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand. God does a a lot of neat things throughout this service. I've been watching...